Section 37 of The Theory of the Leisure Class. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorsten Veblen. Third part of Chapter 14. The Higher Learning as an Expression of the Pecuniary Culture. By way of characterization of the Messinus relation, it is to be noted that, considered externally as an economic or industrial relation simply, it is a relation of status. The scholar under the patronage performs the duties of a learned life vicariously for his patron, to whom a certain repute inures after the manner of the good repute imputed to a master for whom any form of vicarious leisure is performed. It is also to be noted that, in point of historical fact, the furtherance of learning, or the maintenance of scholarly activity through the Messinus relation, has most commonly been a furtherance of proficiency in classical lore or in the humanities. The knowledge tends to lower, rather than to heighten, the industrial efficiency of the community. Further, as regards the direct participation of the members of the leisure class in the furtherance of knowledge, the canons of reputable living act to throw such intellectual interest as seeks expression among the class on the side of classical and formal erudition, rather than on the side of the sciences that bear some relation to the community's industrial life. The most frequent excursions into other than classical fields of knowledge, on the part of members of the leisure class, are made into the discipline of law and the political, and more especially the administrative sciences." These so-called sciences are substantially bodies of maxims of expediency for guidance in the leisure class office of government as conducted on a proprietary basis. The interest with which this discipline is approached is therefore not commonly the intellectual or cognitive interest simply. It is largely the practical interest of the exigencies of that relation of mastery in which the members of the class are placed. In point of derivation, the office of government is a predatory function, pertaining integrally to the archaic leisure class scheme of life. It is an exercise of control and coercion over the population from which the class draws its sustenance. This discipline, as well as the incidents of practice which give it its content, therefore has some attraction for the class apart from all questions of cognition. All this holds true wherever and so long as the governmental office continues, in form or in substance, to be a proprietary office, and it holds true beyond that limit in so far as the tradition of the more archaic phase of governmental evolution has lasted on into the later life of those modern communities for whom proprietary government by a leisure class is now beginning to pass away. For that field of learning within which the cognitive or intellectual interest is dominant, the sciences properly so called, the case is somewhat different, not only as regards the attitude of the leisure class, but as regards the whole drift of the pecuniary culture. Knowledge for its own sake, the exercise of the faculty of comprehensive without ulterior purpose, should, it might be expected, be sought by men whom no urgent material interest diverts from such a quest. The sheltered industrial position of the leisure class should give free play to the cognitive interest in members of this class, and we should consequently have, as many writers confidently find that we do have, a very large proportion of scholars, scientists, savants, derived from this class, and deriving their incentive to scientific investigation and speculation from the discipline of a life of leisure. Some such result is to be looked for, but there are features of the leisure class scheme of life, 
already sufficiently dwelt upon, which go to divert the intellectual interest of this class to other subjects than that causal sequence in phenomena that makes the content of the sciences. The habits of thought which characterize the life of the class run on the personal relation of dominance, and on the derivative, invidious concepts of honor, worth, merit, character, and the like. The causal sequence which makes up the subject matter of science is not visible from this point of view. Neither does good repute attach to knowledge of facts which are vulgarly used. Hence it should appear probable that the interest of the invidious comparison with respect to pecuniary or other honorific merit should occupy the attention of the leisure class, to the neglect of the cognitive interest. Where this latter interest asserts itself, it should commonly be diverted to fields of speculation or investigation which are reputable and futile, rather than to the quest of scientific knowledge. Such, indeed, has been the history of priestly and leisure class learning, so long as no considerable body of systematized knowledge has been intruded into the scholastic discipline from an extra-scholastic source. But since the relation of mastery and subservience is ceasing to be the dominant and formative factor in the community's life process, other features of the life process and other points of view are forcing themselves upon the scholars. The true-bred gentleman of leisure should, and does, see the world from the point of view of the personal relation, and the cognitive interest, so far as it asserts itself in him, should seek to systematize phenomena on this basis. Such indeed is the case with the gentleman of the old school, in whom the leisure class ideals have suffered no disintegration, and such is the attitude of his latter-day descendant, in so far as he has fallen heir to the full complement of upper-class virtues. But the ways of heredity are devious, and not every gentleman's son is to the manner born. Especially is the transmission of the habits of thought, which characterize the predatory master, somewhat precarious in the case of a line of descent, in which but one or two of the latest steps have lain within the leisure class discipline. The chances of occurrence of a strong congenital or acquired bent toward the exercise of the cognitive aptitudes are apparently best in those members of the leisure class who are of lower class or middle class antecedents, that is to say, those who have inherited the complement of aptitudes proper to the industrious classes, and who owe their place in the leisure class to the possession of qualities which count for more today than they did in the times when the leisure class scheme of life took shape. But even outside the range of these later accessions to the leisure class, there are an appreciable number of individuals in whom the invidious interest is not sufficiently dominant to shape their theoretical views, and in whom the proclivity to theory is sufficiently strong to lead them into the scientific quest. The higher learning owes the intrusion of the sciences in part to these aberrant scions of the leisure class, who have come under the dominant influence of the latter-day tradition of impersonal relation, and who have inherited a complement of human aptitudes differing in certain salient features from the temperament which is characteristic of the regime of status. But it owes the presence of this alien body of scientific knowledge also in part, and in a higher degree, to members of the industrious classes who have been in sufficiently easy circumstances to turn their attention to other interests than that of finding daily sustenance, and whose inherited aptitudes and anthropomorphic point of view does not dominate their intellectual processes. As between these two groups, which approximately comprise the effective force of scientific progress, it is the latter that has contributed the most. And with respect to both, it seems to be true that they are not so much the source as the vehicle, or at the most they are the instrument of commutation, 
by which the habits of thought enforced upon the community through contact with its environment under the exigencies of modern associated life and the mechanical industries are turned to account for theoretical knowledge science in the sense of an articulate recognition of causal sequence in phenomena whether physical or social has been a feature of the western culture only since the industrial process in the western communities has come to be substantially a process of mechanical contrivances in which man's office is that of discrimination and valuation of material forces science has flourished somewhat in the same degree as the industrial life of the community has conformed to this pattern and somewhat in the same degree as the industrial interest has dominated the community's life. And science, and scientific theory especially, has made headway in the several departments of human life and knowledge, in proportion as each of these several departments has successively come into closer contact with the industrial processes and the economic interest. Or perhaps it is truer to say, in proportion as each of them has successively escaped from the dominance of the conceptions of personal relation or status, and of the derivative canons of anthropomorphic fitness and honorific worth. It is only as the exigencies of modern industrial life have enforced the recognition of causal sequence in the practical contact of mankind with their environment, that men have come to systematize the phenomena of this environment and the facts of their own contact with it in terms of causal sequence so that, while the higher learning in its best development, as the perfect flower of scholasticism and classicism, was a by-product of the priestly office and the life of leisure, so modern science may be said to be a by-product of the industrial process. Through these groups of men, then investigators, savants, scientists, inventors, speculators, most of whom have done their most telling work outside of the shelter of the schools, the habits of thought enforced by the modern industrial life have found coherent expression and elaboration as a body of theoretical science having to do with the causal sequence of phenomena. And from this extra-scholastic field of scientific speculation, changes of method and purpose have from time to time been intruded into the scholastic discipline. In this connection, it is to be remarked that there is a very perceptible difference of substance and purpose between the instruction offered in the primary and secondary schools, on the one hand, and in the higher seminaries of learning, on the other hand. The difference in point of immediate practicality of the information imparted, and of the proficiency acquired, may be of some consequence, and may merit the attention which it has from time to time received. But there is more substantial difference in the mental and spiritual bent which is favored by the one and the other discipline. This divergent trend in discipline between the higher and lower learning is especially noticeable as regards the primary education in its latest development in the advanced industrial communities. Here the instruction is directed chiefly to proficiency or dexterity, intellectual and manual, in the apprehension and employment of impersonal facts, in their causal rather than their honorific incidents. It is true, under the traditions of the earlier days, when the primary education was also predominantly a leisure class commodity, a free use is still made of emulation as a spur to diligence in the common run of primary schools. But even this use of emulation as an expedient is visibly declining in the primary grades of instruction in communities where the lower education is not under the guidance of the ecclesiastical or military tradition. All this holds true in a peculiar degree, and more especially on the spiritual side, of such portions of the educational system as have been immediately affected by kindergarten methods and ideals. 
The peculiarly non-invidious trend of the kindergarten discipline and the similar character of the kindergarten influence in primary education beyond the limits of the kindergarten proper should be taken in connection with what has already been said of the peculiar spiritual attitude of leisure-class womankind under the circumstances of the modern economic situation. The kindergarten discipline is at its best, or at its farthest removed from ancient patriarchal and pedagogical ideas, in the advanced industrial communities, where there is a considerable body of intelligent and idle women, and where the system of status has somewhat abated in rigor under the disintegrating influence of industrial life and in the absence of a consistent body of military and ecclesiastical traditions. It is from these women in easy circumstances that it gets its moral support. The aims and methods of the kindergarten commend themselves with a special effect to this class of women who are ill at ease under the pecuniary code of reputable life. The kindergarten, and whatever the kindergarten spirit counts for in modern education, therefore is to be set down, along with the new woman movement, to the account of that revulsion against futility and invidious comparison which the leisure class life under modern circumstances induces in the women most immediately exposed to its discipline. In this way it appears that, by indirection, the institution of a leisure class, here again, favors the growth of a non-invidious attitude, which may, in the long run, prove a menace to the stability of the institution itself, and even to the institution of individual ownership on which it rests. During the recent past, some tangible changes have taken place in the scope of college and university teaching. These changes have, in the main, consisted in a partial displacement of the humanities, those branches of learning which are conceived to make for the traditional culture, character, tastes, and ideals, by those more matter-of-fact branches, which make for civic and industrial efficiency. To put the same thing in other words, those branches of knowledge which make for efficiency, ultimately productive efficiency, have gradually been gaining ground against those branches which make for a heightened consumption or a lowered industrial efficiency, and for a type of character suited to the regime of status. In this adaptation of the scheme of instruction, the higher schools have commonly been found on the conservative side. Each step which they have taken in advance has been, to some extent, of the nature of a concession. The sciences have been intruded into the scholar's discipline from without, not to say from below. It is noticeable that the humanities which have so reluctantly yielded ground to the sciences are pretty uniformly adapted to shape the character of the student in accordance with a traditional self-centered scheme of consumption, a scheme of contemplation, and enjoyment of the true, the beautiful, and the good, according to a conventional standard of propriety and excellence, the salient feature of which is leisure, optium cum dignitati. In language, veiled by their own habituation to the archaic, decorous point of view, the spokesmen of the humanities have insisted upon the ideal embodied in the maxim, frugis consumere nati. This attitude should occasion no surprise in the case of schools which are shaped by and rest upon a leisure-class culture. The professed grounds on which it has been sought, as far as might be, to maintain the received standards and methods of culture intact, are likewise characteristic of the archaic temperament and of the leisure-class theory of life. The enjoyment and the bent derive from habitual contemplation of the life, ideals, speculations, and methods of consuming time and goods, in vogue among the leisure class of classical antiquity, for instance, is felt to be higher, nobler, worthier, 
than what results in these respects from a like familiarity with the everyday life and the knowledge and aspirations of commonplace humanity in a modern community. That learning the content of which is an unmitigated knowledge of latter-day men and things is by comparison lower, base, ignoble. One even hears the epithet subhuman applied to this matter-of-fact knowledge of mankind and of everyday life. End of third part of chapter 14.